And again, let me just mention that we're going to go through the series called Foretold, which is something that everybody in the uh, classes and all the Bible Fellowship classes are going through. But then we also like to answer some questions. And you can see we've got two Ask Kirby questions today, so there's an opportunity for you to learn as well. So, Paul, if we can move to the next slide, what we're going to look at here is Isaiah chapter 8. And so you might turn there. We're going to pick up part of chapter 9, which is, of course, probably one of the more familiar passages in all of the book of Isaiah. And the next slide will then let us uh, focus on a few things. Because the context here is Isaiah really has some bad news for Judah. If you were with us last week, we talked about the fear that indeed that they were going to be taken over by Israel and Syria. It turns out that really the fear they should have had was about Assyria because it's coming in large part because Judah has rejected God and there's now going to be judgment and exile. And I think that the lesson that we can learn here is living outside of God's covenant promises uh, can bring darkness. And so in the midst of this, we're going to hear a light to the darkness. And what a great illustration, as we heard today, about this new ministry here at the church. So uh, let's go to our next slide. And uh, we're going to, in the interest of time, since we got started a little bit late, uh, just encourage you to kind of look at chapter 8. So lots of times I read every one of the verses, but you can see here that the Lord tells him uh, to take a tablet, write the name of the son. Uh, then he begins to use some illustrations in verse 5 about the waters, and uh, that is, I think, an illustration of how the waters in a flood can just overwhelm things. Uh, in just a minute, we'll talk about what happened in Houston. Uh, those of us that have ever been to the Garland shooting range, you might have seen that last, this week in Chattel, uh, uh, Channel 8. It completely flooded to the roof of that uh, particular area, and the waters just wept away all of the gates and everything. And so here is this idea of using uh, flood waters as an illustration of what Assyria is going to do. And then at the end here, then a quote about Emmanuel, verses 9 and following. So let's, if we can, go through this fairly quickly uh, to look at this issue of darkness. And that is, again, that here God is bringing judgment against King Ahaz and Judah because they did not repent. And so God is commanding him, as I mentioned, to put uh, the name of a son on the tablet. And why does he do that? And my suggestion is, is that he is hearkening back to a time when there were names and words on a tablet. That was the Ten Commandments. And uh, again, if the nation of Israel would not obey what was on the tablet, uh, certainly he's bringing them back to this concept as well. And indicts the people for breaking their covenant responsibilities and just again telling them that what is about ready to happen is sure to pass. Then uh, he and his wife receive the son, follow the instructions, name him. Uh, then you see, of course, that uh, it's sort of ironic that here Judah the whole time has been fearful of these armies. Israel and Syria down below, they're up above in Jerusalem. And the fear that she should have had was not of Syria and Israel. It's of Assyria, but ultimately it's a fear of God's judgment, that God has used Assyria uh, to actually bring judgment. And he confirms that in verses 5 and 6. Then our next slide uh, looks a little bit more at verses 7 and 8, and it describes, as I said, Assyria is like a rushing water. And lately we've seen these floods. I've heard that we've had more 
water come down in February and September than ever. As a matter of fact, 70% of all the precipitation came down in one of those two months. And again, we set a record here. We're coming to the last day of September, unless it rains one more time. I guess we can kind of get the final rain totals here. Uh, more rain in September than ever before. And you think about flooding here. You think of the flooding in Houston. And we can see what a destructive force water is. And this was in a day when they did not have dams and they did not have an ability to control that. So even more so, when you refer to Assyria as a rushing water or a destructive force, it's illustrating again that it's going to leave very little in its wake. And indeed, we find out from secular history that this was a very swift destruction indeed. And then the final verses uh, move away from Judah and Jerusalem to a proclamation now for all peoples and all countries, because it's setting up for chapter 9, where we're going to look about the Messiah. And ultimately, just to remind you here that God is the ultimate authority. He's sovereign, he's powerful, and he is holy. And when he stands against you, there's no armor that can stand against you. Uh, there's no political alliance or a large enough and there's no human knowledge deep enough to overcome his power. So the bottom line is you want to be on the Lord's side, right? And not on the other side. So that's kind of an implication here. Verses 11 and following, again, just in the interest of time, I won't read all the passages here. But you can see verse 11, it talks about, again, a strong hand that is upon me. I do not call it a conspiracy. All that these people call conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor to be dread. But the Lord of hosts with him show honor as holy. He goes on then to talk about binding up in verse uh, 16, the testimony sealed the teaching as they would bind up some of the scrolls and things like that. And then behold, in verse 18, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Then goes on and says, don't inquire the mediums. And I thought it was interesting when you talk about these people that are involved in the occult. And we're now entering into the Halloween season, right? So we're going to hear a lot more about that. The necromancers there who chirp and mutter, it, it still is amazing to me that some people would go to some of these mediums, uh, some of these necromancers, some of these witches, and they would chirp and they would mutter. And you thought, that really is something that tells you anything at all about what God is going to do or how you're going to, from those bizarre kind of comments, uh, perceive the future. But nevertheless, I thought that was an interesting little statement there as well. And then continues on to uh, the idea of uh, looking at this idea of darkness. So let's go to our next slide. And uh, starting in verse 11, we'll see that Israel receives, of course, another word from the Lord warning him, uh, and warning them against uh, the following the ways of Judah. Isaiah is calling Isaiah to stand strong in the face of people who want to make their own plans and people who serve their own gods and promote their own fame in the world. And that matches very much with Jared Stevens' message today, I thought. And here we see, if nothing else, God's strong hand is on Isaiah, giving him assurance that Emmanuel, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us will actually watch over Israel and uh, over even Isaiah himself. Then, also we see here that God reminds Isaiah that he is the only one and the only being who is worthy of our deepest respect and fear. 
And so this idea of fearing the Lord is really key, not only in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament talks about this idea of fearing the Lord because he will protect and preserve you. And if nothing else, I think what you see here is just, again, an encouragement for us to have a healthy fear of the Lord, uh, to understand who God is. Let's take our next slide here real quickly and uh, finish this particular section because I'm going to focus more attention on chapter 9. But here we see Isaiah concludes the a particular section with a confirmation of a promise of life and of health, and it rests on those who faithfully follow God. So this is a promise, I believe, that we can take with us. Verses 16 and 17 talk about binding up the words spoken by God for those who are his disciples. The binding up, sometimes you would take a scroll and you would bind it up. And so it's the idea of uh, taking it seriously. Uh, today we talk about taking our Bibles with us. You know, matter of fact, now with our phones, we can take our Bibles with us all the time. And so make sure that you are resting on God's word, that you're taking God's word with you as you take his word into the world, I think is the application that we would apply today. And then verses 18 and following describe how disorienting life without God would be for Judah. And the people, of course, are asking important questions but they receive no answers. So let's move on to now the last section. I think we can read that because we've got enough time now. Starting verse 9 here. But there will be no gloom for Huru who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought them into contempt of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan and the Galilee of the nations. I'll talk more about what all that means in just a minute. And then the very famous quote, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, perhaps the most famous verses... For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, and there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so we have a very clear indication here, and it talks about the unfolding of this coming Messiah. And the Messiah is one who will bring light and life. And just as, again, we've had a chance to hear from Sheila Walsh and others that are talking about bringing light into darkness here, of course, the Messiah is seen as one who will bring light to the darkness. Verse 1 talks about proclaiming relief and blessing for those who have experienced hardships. Recognize that they are experiencing hardship. Many of them reading this, have, they have been in exile or they've returned back to exile, but they have a conquering army that have taken them over. Verse 2 talks about the fact that though they may have been walking in darkness, eventually there will be an advent of a great light that will come. 
Next uh, set of slides here, look at the fact that here Isaiah mentions a couple of phrases. He talks about the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and the Galilee of the nations. What does that mean? Well, it turns out that the way to the sea is really this network of roads that crisscross the nation. If you ever go to Israel, once you look at a map and you're there, you realize why Israel was always finding various warring groups coming through. Because if you want to get from Europe to um, Egypt or you want to get from uh Asia Minor uh, to Egypt, or you want to get to Babylon, it all crosses through basically Israel. And so there's this, this, this network of these roads. And even to this day, some of those roads are now paved, but you can see where some of the other roads were used during the time. So here's this idea of the way to the sea. If they were to want to actually take their goods and put them on a boat in the Mediterranean, again, that's the way to the sea. The land beyond the Jordan, that's very simple. That is... The promised land, that is Canaan. And so we see that, and of course, then the idea of Galilee of the nations. Next slide, then, will be in verse 2, how the Messiah will reveal what was once hidden, now becoming for, uh, in the forefront because of the light of his presence. And here, then, we now begin to see how the Messiah, Jesus, fill, fulfills many of these claims. Because Jesus reveals the Father and speaks to his people. And we just looked at Hebrews chapter 1 last week. And the Messiah offers joy and supplies every need in abundance, verse 3. We see that Jesus brings the abundant life and promises to supply all of our needs. And again, these verses are there later. If you'd like to use those, maybe put them in an index card and uh, set them on your refrigerator or put them on your computer, because we can see those are some. Let's look at a few more. The Messiah says in verse 4, will bring freedom and rest to all of its people. And we see how Jesus fulfills that because he promised rest to the weary and the heavy laden. We see that in the book of Matthew. It says in verse 5 that the Messiah will bring peace and security to a nation which at that time was ravaged by war and conquest. And how did Jesus fulfill that? He offers a way of loving our enemies, praying for our persecutors, and actually being able to live in the kingdom, his kingdom, in love. Then the next slide, we look at the fact that now, as they are looking for the Messiah, he won't be just any ordinary child. He will be, as we see in verse 6, born of a virgin. But interestingly enough, if you think about that, the advent would be ordinarily extraordinary, if you can put those two words together. It's ordinary in the sense that the Messiah will be born like a child, but it's extraordinary in that it will happen as a virgin birth. And so it's kind of interesting to see how that came together. And you can kind of imagine why many of the Jews rejected Jesus. Because you see this idea of a wonderful counselor. Yeah, but you also see mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, uh, the government be on his shoulder. They're looking for kind of a military person. They're working, eventually, during the time of Jesus, they're looking for somebody that's going to destroy the Romans. Even as they're reading this, they're looking for somebody that's going to vanquish the Assyrians. And Jesus says, you know, consider the lilies of the field. And they're going, this is not the person we're expecting, you know. This is very different, because in some respects, these are prophecies about his second coming, not his first coming. By the way, you do want to come Wednesday. Uh, this is going to be a great opportunity to hear from Mark Hitchcock, one of my 
good friends. At, uh, I've known him for years when he's been a pastor up there in Oklahoma, but he also teaches now at Dallas Seminary. And if you really want to learn some prophecy, you know, I think you really will enjoy our Wednesday series with uh, Mark Hitchcock. But let's go on. I'm uh, taking too much of a rabbit trail on that one. And now we come to verse 6, because here is this idea that he will indeed rule over all the nations. And this is a fulfillment of what is called the Davidic Covenant. David was promised that there would be someone in his line that would eventually rule over the world. And so they're expecting somebody like David, right? A military leader. But remember, David also was the one that gave us poetry. You know, so David was also soft and also was hard. David was also compassionate and also was a mighty warrior. But here, again, we can see this. And again, he possesses all the authority and power of God. He would then be named what? A mighty God. And not a name that is given lightly. Again, we might say somebody's a king or a god today. But back then, that was a very significant confirmation of God incarnate coming to earth. Our next slide then looks at the fact that he would also be called the Prince of Peace. Uh, assures us that and indeed there will be a time in which there will be peace in the world, unlike anything we've seen before. And of course, the New Testament confirms this Messiah reveals his might and secures our personal peace right now through the cross. But eventually his kingdom will grow and there will be a time in which he will rule on that particular mount, Mount Zion, and he will rule across the world. Next slide then gets us into, okay, the last piece there as well. So, again, I thought it would be good to just uh, go through this fairly quickly, and I've given myself enough time to do a couple of the Ask Kirby questions. But as you can see, I think some of the obvious application is that here they made a big mistake by thinking that they should be fearful of Israel, fearful of Syria, when their greatest fear should have been of Assyria, and even more important, their greatest fear is once you're outside of God's will, there are some very dire consequences, and of course, that's what he has. So in the midst of a very, a very discouraging chapter 8, we then come to chapter 9, which is what we sing and we speak during the Christmas season. Okay, so let me get to a couple of the questions that uh, came this week. And the first one is, are the Christadelphians a cult? Which causes a lot of you to say, what in the world are these? Well, Bryce this week, or last week, apparently was talking to somebody who is a car dealer. David, you got to watch about these car dealers. But this one car dealer, interestingly enough, um, said, um, I'm a Christadelphian. And Bryce said, what in the world is that? Turns out really his father is. And um, here's an individual meeting people all the time, selling cars and everything and others. And you might just say, okay, if I run into somebody about that, what do they believe? And more importantly, if they have these views, how would I respond to them or other people like them? And it turns out that the Christadelphians actually are a group that believe that when it says beloved, it means created. Have we heard that today? Yes, I think we have. So the connection between these two is fascinating. Let's get to, first of all, what in the world are the Christadelphians? Okay. This goes back to a man by the name of John Thomas. He was born in 1805, lived in London, and he came across in a ship. And as he was coming across in the ship, the ship sprung a leak, and there was some question as to whether or not they were going to make it to port before the ship sank. 
It is amazing. Today, I wish in some respects we had ships because it's amazing how many people got interested in spiritual things because they almost died on a ship. You might remember John Wesley coming over on a ship and, and they thought it might sink in the, in these terrible storms and the Moravians were all calm and he was wondering, they, they must have some assurance of their eternal destiny and caused him to investigate. Well, John Thomas said, I had never had any interest at all in religion, but I was convinced that I better just think about this because, you know, I almost died and I might die and soon day I am going to die, but I might die very soon. So I need to check this out. So he began to study religion. Well, he came over at about a time in which we had what I called the restoration movement. Restoration movement came during the Second Great Awakening, in which some people who had become believers or at least they thought they were believers, um, were rejecting all the denominations. You know, the Baptists believe this, and the Methodists believe this, and the Anglicans believe that, and the Quakers believe this, and, um, just all these different denominations. And so as a result, there was this real drive to restore biblical Christianity. And out of the restoration movement, you've got all sorts of different things. You've got some that were, to this day, fairly orthodox, Church of Christ would be a good example. Max Lucado is the pastor of a church, the Church of Christ. You have some that are maybe a little bit fuzzy on a doctrine here and there, like Seventh-day Adventists, which generally may be believing most of the Orthodox beliefs, believe you should worship instead on Saturday. You have some that say, well, maybe we shouldn't have music in the church because there's no evidence of music in the church. So some of these out of the Restoration Movement maybe differ a little bit in terms of church function. And then you have others in the Restoration Movement said, no, we're going to go back and restore biblical Christianity because I'm a prophet. Joseph Smith would be in that part of the restoration movement that turned into a cult. Mary Baker Eddy, uh, Charles Taz Russell, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. So in the midst of this, one of those were what were known as the Campbellites. And so for a while, John Thomas actually was part of the Campbellite sect, if you will, that was trying to restore biblical Christianity. But eventually he began to, because of his hard-headedness and everything else, disagree with some of the things Alexander Campbell had to say, so he was disfellowshipped. And the next slide shows you why that took place. Because unlike Campbell, Thomas believed that a person must have knowledge of the Scriptures before baptism. So they had to be teaching all of this before they could ever become baptized. He also believed that really there was no soul. He believed that um, actually the promise happens at the resurrection. So his belief would be kind of like soul sleep or just no, no soul at all. In other words, when you die, you're just kind of waiting there until the resurrection. And so there's nobody in heaven right now. So you can see how that would differ a little bit with some of our views. He also then got real interested in the Adventist movement, Seventh-day, what today we call the Seventh-day Adventists, and they're teaching about end times. And so when his book, which is translated The Hope of Israel, he even had kind of some of this end times millennial view, because many of them believed that Christ was going to return um, in the early part of the 19th century, which, of course, he did not. Uh, but, uh, again, there was all this uh, kind of fervor uh, for the Christadelphians. So the next slide, then, uh, points out that at this time it was just a movement of people that were following Thomas, but they ran into a problem with the Civil War. And that is virtually all of these individuals were pacifists. Well, in order to keep from having to serve 
in many cases these were in the north, in the Union Army, you had to actually be identified with a religion. So that's when he actually gave them the name Christadelphians. You think of Philadelphia, you know, brethren and all that. So this would be brethren in Christ. It's a Greek, and so that's where you have the name Christadelphians. You might say, I don't think I've ever run into a Christadelphian. Well, there are quite a number all over North America. There's even more in England. There's some in Africa and South America. And after Thomas died, they actually had a split, just like the Mormons had a split between the Brighamite Mormons and the Josephite Mormons. There's a split between what are called the amended and unamended Christadelphians. Okay, well, that's a little bit of history. What exactly do they believe? And you can then come to your conclusion as to whether they're a cult. And that is, when we talk about a cult, we oftentimes, and, and I don't try to use that in a disparaging way, but a cult is oftentimes defined as a group that disagrees and uh, actually completely contradicts one or more fundamental doctrines of a major religion. So, obviously, Jehovah's Witness would be a cult of Christianity. Black Muslims would be a cult of Islam. And in this case, they differ from Orthodox Christianity in a couple of really key areas. First of all, they reject the tw- Trinity. They believe that only the Father is God. Okay, so what do they believe about Jesus? Well, this is the interesting turn of phrase. They say that they believe Jesus is the Son of God, but not God the Son. In other words, they say, well, he's called the Son of God, but that just means he's God's Son because he was, what was the word we heard today from Jared Stevens? Begotten. And if you believe that begotten means what? Created. Then you can see where the heresy develops. It goes all the way back to the Arian heresy. And also, if you read their literature, and I take enough time to read it, didn't do it as part of my quiet time, but, you know, if you want to read a little of it, you'll find that, first of all, they believe that God, Jesus could not be God because God is one. And I'm going to come back to that because obviously the Bible teaches that God is one, but in three persons. And they also believe that God cannot die. And since Jesus died on the cross, then obviously he's not God. So that's the argument being made by the Christadelphians. They also don't believe in the existence of Satan. And they don't believe the words Satan and the devil are the same person. They, first of all, they don't believe Satan's a person. They just believe it's kind of a force. But they believe the devil is really kind of sin or human nature. I'm going to contradict that in just a minute. And then they believe that salvation is through belief, baptism, and obedience. If you talk to a Christadelphian, they'll sound a little bit like Christians because they talk about, well, you have to have faith. You have to have baptism, you have to have obedience, but to them, faith is the idea of acquiring knowledge. So it's really just kind of an intellectual pursuit. Does that help you? Okay, how would I respond to an individual that's a Christadelphian, which you may or may never run into, or somebody that holds similar beliefs? Here's real quickly an answer. Let's look at our next slide. I'll give you a couple of short answers, but you can certainly uh, find others if you'd like to. First of all, it's back to this issue of the Trinity. As I've said before, one of the greatest doctrines under attack in the 21st century is the Trinity. Do Muslims reject the Trinity? Yes. 1.6 billion people on this planet reject the Trinity. Do Jehovah's Witnesses reject the Trinity? Yes. And they're knocking at your door, right? Uh, do uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, reject the Trinity? Yes. 
the Christadelphians reject the Trinity. Yes, you see the point? If there's anything you really want to know, it's how to deal with that. Well, first of all, we can look at passages that talk about the fact that the Father is God. Philippians 2, 2 Peter is a good example. But then we have other passages that show us that the Son is God. We can see that in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word is God. Uh, chapter 10, uh, you know, I and the Father are one. Revelation 1, 8. And then the Holy Spirit, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And those are just a few. And today, uh, we even uh, heard a little bit about that with uh, Jarrett Stevens. What he talked about, you know, let us make man in what? Our image. So, so you have this concept even in the book of Genesis. So that's the first thing. Okay, how do we deal with the fact that Jesus died? Well, Philippians 2, this is what's known as the kenosis passage. That's the Greek for the emptying passage. Is that It says Jesus, as being in the form of God, but as a servant, took on the likeness of man. And that brings us back to the Nicene Creed. That, boy, Jared Stevens, you think when I, we would conspire to bring all this together in the Nicene Creed about fully God and fully man. And so, was Jesus human? Yes. He was tired. He was hungry. He was in pain. He died. Was he also God? Yes, he was also God. Okay. Now, what about the words devil and Satan? First of all, this is a silly thing, because the word devil and Satan, you can make a very clear point that these refer to the same individual. Um, Revelation is a good example of that. Revelation 12, Revelation 20. But more importantly, if indeed the devil is just supposed to be your sin nature, well, it talks about a person who sins. It says Satan who actually sinned. So that doesn't work as well. So you can, you can come up with very good scriptural responses uh, to the view that is held there. Which, by the way, is not just a view of the Christadelphians. When we did at Pro Ministries a survey of the born-again millennials, these are people that have a born-again experience that were born probably, you know, after about 1980 or onward, we found that of the six major doctrines, the one that they disagreed with the most was the belief that Satan is a person. So we, even inside the church, not to mention the people outside the church, don't believe in Satan. One of the books I have up here is my book on spiritual warfare. Of course, uh, Pastor Graham has one as well. And my argument is, how can you be successful in spiritual warfare if you don't even know there's a war and you don't even know who your adversary is. And so that's kind of interesting. And then one more. Salvation comes from what? True faith. I put down John 5, 24. And of course, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We are saved by what? And there's the word grace, which comes out of our message as well. So I hope that that gives you a brief answer. Answering questions about Christadelphians. Unlike Bryce, you may never run into a Christadelphian, but you never know. And you certainly will run into Jehovah's Witnesses. You'll run into Mormons. You will run into atheists and others that in one way or another accept some of those ideas. So I've given you just a couple of quick answers on how to respond. And I see some of you taking your phones out and taking pictures of this. So that's one way to get it. But the other is you can go to PrestonWoodExamine.org to find all these verses if I've been talking talking too fast and you haven't been able to write them all down. With me? Okay, one more real quickly. The other question, is there su- why is there such division in America? 
Now, normally, if you're a teacher, you have to explain why you believe there is division in America. After this week, do I need to explain that there's any division in America? No, I don't think so. So what I thought I would do is try to take a run at this, and maybe we'll hit this a couple of times in the next couple of weeks. But there are two individuals I thought would be really good to quote this week that uh, would be helpful to maybe give us an insight into why there is such a division in America. And so the first one is a man by the name of Victor Davis Hanson. Victor Davis Hanson is at the Hoover Institute at the Stanford University. I've had him on my program before. He's a historian. And he's written about the origins of our second civil war. And his argument is, is that we're in the midst of a civil war. Now, Gary Fraser has a book that just came out, and real quickly, we're going to talk about that sometime in the next couple of weeks. And Gary and I were talking about this the other day, that he has quoted an individual that has looked at why civil wars take place. And most of them, we think of civil wars taking place when somebody shoots. But this person said, no, usually civil wars happen when you've had a disputed election, which leads to more division, and then the shooting stops. Let's take it out of our current context. Look at 1860, a controversial election. Three individuals elected and Abraham Lincoln barely getting into the presidency and the controversy that surfaced. Was there division before Abraham Lincoln? Yes. But the division accentuated that. And the Civil War, in a sense, already was taking place before the first shots were fired on Fort Sumter. In some cases, when we talk about election, we mean election in quotes. Sometimes it's been where there has been a military coup and somebody takes power or a dictator takes power. But wherever that accentuates the division. So now if I go to the article by um, Victor Davis Hanson, what I thought was so interesting is he said almost every cultural and social institution, universities, public schools, the NFL, the Oscars, the Tonys, the Grammys, late-night television, public restaurants, coffee shops, movies, TV, stand-up comedy, have not just been politicized, but they've also been weaponized. And then he goes on to say, Donald Trump's election was not so much a catalyst for the divide as a manifestation and an amplification for the existing schism. Was America divided before anybody even knew that Donald Trump was going to run for office? Yes. Has it accentuated that? Sure. Now, he goes into a lot of detail, so I'm just going to give you a couple of key talking points, but you can find this on the line if you'd like to. One is, he said, globalization. You know, we live in this global world, and he said it's had the unfortunate effect of undermining national unity. Because what's happened is some people have done pretty well, for example, billionaires in the high-tech industry and finance, but most Americans have lost out. Over the last 10 years, up until recently, so let's take the last six months out, or maybe almost the last year, but you go back 10 years, the median family income for Americans has increased three-tenths of one percent. Given the fact that inflation has been taking place, families have been losing ground for almost 10 years. That's changed rather dramatically in the last year. I don't know who gets claimed for it. The previous president says it's due to him. The current president says it's him. I'll let you figure that one out. But nevertheless, it shows you that that sense in which people were not doing well and actually, in some cases, doing poorly and wage gaps and all the rest of it. And he said, to make matters worse, the elites blame the losers, the clingers and the deplorables for driving industries out of the country because they were too racist, xenophobic to get with a globalist agenda. So it's bad enough that these people were doing worse. They were getting blamed for it at the time. And that caused some of the division. Next slide. 
looks at one more, and that is the issue of high tech. We've gone into a time of having high tech, which has kind of disguised some of this. I love what he says. Suddenly, the lower middle class and even the poor had in the palms of their hands the telecommunication communications power of the Pentagon of the 1970s, the computing power of IBM in the 1980s, and the entertainment diversity of the rich in the 1990s. These little devices here have given people a chance to have access to a tremendous amount of digitized information. And so as a result, we haven't felt like we are losing ground. But he said the new normal has been two parents at work, renting instead of mine, and an eight-year car loan instead of a three-year car loan. And he's got lots of other examples, but the point he's made is there has been kind of economic challenges. The next slide then gets us into what happened on the university campuses. And that is, it has really split the country in two. First of all, in order for the campuses to really compete for the scarce number of students, we had a baby boom, then we had a baby bust, and then we have a baby boomlet. But when you have that lull there, universities, many of which were not being able to get as many students, so they began to spend lots and lots of money on having what he called club med-type resorts. Um, you would go into these... Uh, Matter of fact, I remember when my daughter went into the, showed us in the dining hall of the University of North Texas, and I walked in and looked at that buffet, and I said, this is as good as any buffet I paid money for, and these kids have access to it every day. And, of course, we got uh, gluten-free, we got, you know, every, you know, you know, I mean, you go into, and you go into these athletic facilities in some of these places around the country, and just, they're just opulent. But guess what? It raised the price. And so as a result, you ended up with students that were putting more and more on their student loans, graduating with not just $30,000 in student loans, sometimes $100,000 in student loans. At the same time, when you look at what was happening in the university, they were becoming more and more left-wing. Well, it's not like they weren't left-wing before. It's just that they become even more so. Liberalism used to say, um, we will have an open debate. A typical liberal would say, you know, I may disagree with your views, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Is that what they're saying on college campuses today? No, liberalism has gone to leftism, and the left says you have no right to say those kinds of ideas. You have no right to express those kinds of viewpoints. And so it's become more and more radical. Anyway, one of his quotes here, you have a generation that is ignorant, arrogant, and poor. That's a prescription for social viatility, volatility. One more real quickly, and that gets us into the subject of immigration, because that's changed the demographics as well and changed the Electoral College map. But it also focused on this idea of diversity, but it's created this tribalism. A very good book by Jonah Goldberg right now, um, The Suicide of the West, talking about how everybody's in their own little tribe. Did you see some tribes in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee this week? You see some tribes outside of, I mean, in almost an inability to talk to individuals anymore. And so that's kind of his argument that we find ourselves in the midst, and he has many other examples. I just picked out a few in the interest of time that have caused just a real schism that has taken place in America. Let's get to our next slide then. And I want to pick out one other resource. A few of us in the class here actually had a chance this week to hear Oz Guinness. And Oz Guinness used to be with Francis Schaeffer, has written a book called The Last Call for Liberty. And he looks at it from a slightly different you know, point of view. And that is that we really have two views of freedom. Let's look at our next slide. 
The one view of freedom, which is embodied, he says, in 1776 and the American Revolution. The other view arose in 1789 and the French Revolution. And if you haven't studied it, there's a remarkable difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The American Revolution is found in the Declaration of Independence. In his book, he takes it all the way back to the Reformation, who then take it all the way back to the Book of Exodus, interestingly enough, and this idea of freedom. By contrast, of course, the second one, it's France's, you know, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, which ended up in what? The Reign of Terror or Karl Marx's the prola, uh, dictatorship of the proletariat, or it's Stalin's uh, uh, famine in the Ukraine, or it's Mao's cultural revolution, or it's Pol Pot. You see where that takes you. And I wanted to digress from the book for just a minute. Does the Bible talk about two views of freedom? Yeah, it really does. One view is that French view of freedom or kind of the cultural view of freedom that I'm free to do whatever I please to do. What do we find that? We find it in Judges 21:25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You probably work with people, no people in your neighborhood. Maybe you even have people in your family say, yeah, I just want to do everything I want. Nobody has the right to tell me what is right or wrong. I make up my own rules, Right. We've seen that on display lately, haven't we? Or even Paul talking about in the book of Romans, you know, I should not use my freedom for licentiousness or for sin. So we have that view of freedom. But the biblical view of freedom, which is more like what was in line with the Declaration of Independence, is John 8, a freedom to follow Christ. The Son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. Free is freedom to follow Christ. What God has called for me to do. Or free to serve others. Galatians 5. For you were called to what? Freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for what? The flesh. But to serve through love, serve one another. So again, I think I would agree with his view of this idea of two very different views of freedom. And those are in clash right now. You know, we're going to have a freedom to do the right thing, or I'm going to have a freedom to do whatever I think I need to do. And you know right now that if you say, well, I think abortion is wrong. Well, who are you to say? I think, uh, you know, same-sex marriage isn't uh, God's intent. Well, yeah, who are you to say? I think pornography is not something you should pursue. Well, who are you to say? You know, because, again, we have this idea that I am free to do anything I want to do with anybody at any time and no moral constraints. And so I think that's really the battle that we see unfolding right now. So, finally, I might mention that there's also a question that he raises about diversity. Because we hear a lot about diversity. But think about this for a minute. There are really two visions that we have there. One is, on the one hand, our proponents of Richard John Newhouse. I knew him when I was at Georgetown. Wrote a book called The Naked Public Square. And that's the idea that you would strip the public square from any kind of religious values. Those are the people right now saying, you know, we simply cannot have a cross. One of the cases before the Supreme Court is whether the cross of sacrifice, Bladensburg, Maryland, whether that's going to get torn down. It's right before the Supreme Court, whether or not we can have a cross right there. Matter of fact, during oral arguments at one point, one of the judges say, well, couldn't we just take the arms off the cross? And then it would just be like an obelisk and then nobody would be offended. 
As a Christian, I'd be offended, wouldn't you? you know? And, of course, you know, that's a case right now. And others, you know, we have our Americans United for Separation of Church and State. We have the Freedom from Religion Foundation others that say we just need to take any religious values out of the public square. The other extreme, which you see more in Europe today, but it's the idea of the sacred public square. You know, if you're in Germany or in Austria and you're Catholic, well, then your tax dollars go to the Catholic Church. If you're a Lutheran, your tax dollars, some of your tax dollars go to the Lutheran Church. So that's an enforced sacred public square. We don't want that either. We don't want a naked public square. We don't want a sacred public square. What I think we want. We want a civil public square where citizens of all faiths or no faiths are free to enter in and engage in public life. Now, some people say, well, then how do we make decisions? We make decisions on who has the best argument, you know, and I have no problem with Christianity in a pluralistic culture like it was in the first century, like it is today in the 21st century, making the best arguments for freedom and best arguments for what's the best for our nation. So anyway, that's just a little bit of a look on that. But again, the book is by Oz Guinness, and I think it's just an illustration of the division. Now, both Victor Davis Hanson and Oz Guinness don't leave you frustrated. They say, what could possibly bring America together? And even though, let's be honest, I'm, I'm not sure Victor Davis Hanson could sign the doctrinal statement of Prestonwood Baptist Church. I think Oz Guinness could. But, I don't think, but even he says, I think one of the greatest answers to our divided country is a revival. Because he's looked at how a revival, the first great awakening, gave us the American Revolution. And the second great awakening really forestalled what eventually became a civil war. And so even he acknowledges that we need a revival in the 21st century. Os Guinness believes that we need to be just faithful individuals following the Lord, standing for his kingdom, making cases for what we want to believe. And if you think about this, Christians in the first century really were able to outlove their culture and outthink their culture. Look at the incredible gift that we have from even what we're reading, as we did a few weeks ago in the book of Acts. Loving Christians reaching out and making a difference in the community. And then, if you don't think that Paul's an intellectual, then try to make your way through the book of Romans and recognize that really Christians in the first century turned that whole culture upside down because they outloved the culture and they outfought the culture. And they brought about uh, some significant change. So I think that's the task for us here in the 21st century.